Hello, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. It's Pastor Brian Owens again, and I am so glad that we could be here together again. Uh, worshiping at home has become the new normal, but through this technology and through our time uh, of sharing in God's Word, then our Lord is glorified and He speaks to each and every one of us at the same time. Today, I would like for us to look at the 43rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. We were in verses 1 through 7 last week, and now I want to continue this word of God to his people Israel as he now lays out and describes who these people are as his servants, but as witnesses to God's glory and to his authority, even the authority over pagan idols and idolatry. So please, let's read together Isaiah chapter 43, verses 8 through 13. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Pray with me, please. Dear Father God, we do praise you for your, your word, your prophecy through Isaiah to your people, the children of Israel, who you called your servant, who you called your witness. And so God, I pray right now that as we can continue to live in a new normal, a, a new season of life, I pray God that you would remind us that those of us who are your people, those who you call by your name, would stand up and remember that we have a purpose, that we have a calling from you to stand and testify about your goodness. Even now in this separation, this isolation from one another, dear God, you still expect us to do that. So I pray God you would teach us through your word exactly who you are and who it is that we are proclaiming, who we testify about. Teach us, Father God, I pray, through your word. Speak boldly now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Isaiah's prophecy here is, is continuing to point to God's people who are now prophesied to eventually go into exile. Now, Isaiah's prophecy was, was, was several decades before 
they went into exile. A century or more later, they go into exile uh, through the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And Isaiah's 43rd chapter continues this idea of God speaking to his people, but now God is laying out his charges against his own people, showing them their faults, showing them where they have failed his glory. And now God calls witnesses and lays out charges against them. And he actually, in this passage, challenges the Gentiles and he challenges those who worship pagan idols to do the same. You bring your witnesses, I will bring my witness, and we will see who is the authority and who is in charge. Isaiah tells us in verse 8, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Now God speaks of Israel here as his servant, and this idea of the servant is the main theme of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. God speaks directly of his servant, singular, of the people of Israel, which implies that there is a larger meaning here that we can pull back the layers to and see exactly who God is talking about. See, the overarching themes here uh, is that Israel is called by God as his servant. And the identity of this servant is argued throughout many interpretations of Isaiah, But the favored interpretation is that Israel is the elect of God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 41. We see it in Isaiah chapter 43 and Isaiah 45. But underlying this primary understanding of of exactly who God is talking about, I think over time we're going to see exactly who the servant of the Lord is. Although Israel here is chosen by God and made by God, if you remember in chapter 43 verse 1, Israel is chosen and made by God to be something specific, to be someone special, and that is to be God's servant here in this world. Israel is not, though, the blameless servant that one would expect. Right? We we see throughout Old Testament uh, prophecies and throughout the histories of God's people, they were not the ideal servant. And so this is what God is now laying out here Through Isaiah's prophecy, God is now calling Israel to the carpet and saying, here's exactly the charges I have against you. Here's how you have offended me. And we we see here this idea in chapter 43, verse 8, the idea of the blind, which is not something new. God has actually called Israel uh, as blind and deaf before. He says this in chapter 42, The previous chapter that we're looking at here, at the end of chapter 42, beginning in verse 18, God says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. And then he continues a long explanation here of exactly who he's talking about. His children, his chosen people, the nation of Israel, who have been told clearly who God is by himself. God has revealed himself to them. So not only have they heard God's word, they've actually seen God through his miracles, through his power, through his own revelation to them, yet somehow they're blind to God. They are deaf to God. And so chapter 43, verse 8, God now says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. God is talking clearly here about his servant, his people, the nation of Israel. 
You see, the children of Israel here have the ability to see and to hear what God does, how God has revealed Himself, what God has commanded, but despite the, 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 pre- the privilege that God's people have, despite this privilege, they act as if they cannot see. They act as if they cannot hear. And this is the, 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 the largest charge that God has against His people. So what is God declaring here? God will bring out the blind so as to restore their sight in Him. God will also bring out the deaf so that they will recover their ability to hear Him. So God's calling these people out here in verse 8 is He's bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, yet, who are deaf, yet have ears. God is He's pointing out the problem, but He's also, at the same time, through His grace and His mercy, saying, I want to restore your sight so that you see me clearly. I'm going to restore your sense of hearing so that you hear my word. And so the people here are first delivered, and then their eyes and their ears are going to be restored back to God. Now the outcome here is that Israel now suffers exile, but this exile will not be permanent. So this exile is God's manner in which He is going to restore Israel's sight and hearing, particularly of God. Now, Israel will sing the praises of God's glory as they go into exile. This is part of what Isaiah's prophecy is pointing to in chapter 43. As you are going out into exile, you're going to be thrown amongst a lot of false gods and pagans, Gentiles, who do not know God, who have not been called by God's name like Israel has. And so Israel going into exile, God is saying, will sing the praises of His glory while also serving as His witnesses in captivity, (laughs) in exile. So you and I, uh, we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this this season of isolation for many people is a form of exile. Have we forgotten that as God's people, we are still witnesses to God's glory no matter where we are, no matter the circumstances that surround us? And this is what God is reminding His people. I want to send you into exile, but I'm doing so so that you will be my witnesses. And in that process of being my witnesses, I will eventually restore your sight and eventually restore your hearing and so that they will eventually come back out of exile and reestablish the cities of Judah. Now, the servant here that God is talking about is identified clearly as Israel, but it is obvious that the servant theme transcends Israel. The servant cannot be limited to Israel for this reason, to the fact that the servant is described later in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 50, verse 10, The servant is described as the one who obeys his servant. So how can a servant obey himself? That's what we're going to look at in a later sermon. And we're going to see exactly who this is talking about. But in Isaiah chapter 43, now beginning in verse 9, speaks of a time when the servant will be witnesses. Look here at verse 9. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. So what is it that God is declaring will happen here in verse 9? Verse 9 speaks of a time when the servant, meaning Israel, 
will become witnesses and will gather with all the nations, all of the Gentiles, all of the pagans, and will be part of a larger gathering of people. These pagan nations, these uncalled, will stand right alongside of Israel, God's called people. And it is there that God's servant will be the witness in a place of darkness where God's voice is neither heard nor his presence seen. That's what's happening here in verse 9. When it says, all the nations gather together, and let all the nations be gathered together, in some translations. Isaiah initiates the scene here where God will be distinguished from false gods. The true living God is setting up the scene to where he will be distinguished very clearly in contrast to the false gods. And to do so requires that a comparison is going to take place where a witness of truth can be expressed, and that which is false will be exposed, and that which is true will be exposed. Verse 9 depicts a calling together of both God's chosen and those who are outside. It was highly necessary at this time to do this because... uh, It was important to distinguish between the true God and the false gods. And can we agree that there is no other time more like this than now? Where it is more important now than ever to distinguish clearly the truth of who God is in contrast to the false gods that seem to be dominating our world. See, it's easy here to ascribe to God the glory of the divinity, but it is more difficult to claim His exclusive truth when surrounded by false gods and accusations. See, God's people here, Israel, they fall and they, they, they turn from God and they embrace pagan idols. And so God is saying, okay, here's the truth is what's going to happen. I need witnesses and I'm going to form you into exactly who I need you to be. And I'm going to do it in the midst of captivity where you have no choice. You are the outsiders yourselves so that the truth of my glory will be proclaimed. You see, at the time of Isaiah's prophecy, this polytheism, this multitudes of gods around the world had created a scenario where God's servant had confused the supreme deity of God with the nothingness of the pagan gods, the servant here being Israel. And this error regarding God's nature and his truth had received greater confirmation When in the ruin of Israel, the pagan nations, those unbelievers, those uncalled, looked at the destruction of Israel that God allowed to happen, and those pagan nations, they applauded their idols and their false gods as if they had vanquished and conquered the true God. And so God is now standing up here and saying, I want to send you my people as witnesses amongst all of these pagans who think that they have won, and you're going to be my witnesses And God is calling out the followers of these false gods to a challenge. Verse 9 is like God is laying down the challenge to his opponents, those who think that they're laughing at God, those who think that they're laughing at God's people. God is now laying down the gauntlet here in verse 9. God is bringing the challenge. Those who will laugh at the dire circumstances of his people are now confronted as God sends his people into exile. And God summons the unbelievers to present their case, to present the truth of their gods, and knowing that no witness of false gods can ever be produced sufficient evidence against the one true God. All claims in support of idols 
let's just be honest, are mere tricks and foolish invention there. It's flamboyant language trying to distort the truth of who God is. And God alone has sufficient witness. That's what he's saying here in verse 9. Now let's move down to verse 10 of chapter 43. God now directly speaks and says, this is exactly the message that I'm going to give you as my witnesses. The testimony that God is now giving to his people. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So what is it that God is saying here in verse 10? When he says, you are my witnesses. Now, God here declares what testimony that his servant Israel will will present here. And so he is giving his own testimony about himself for his people to give. You see, God is his own witness. He doesn't need another declaration or proof of who he is. God declares that himself. He is his own witness. And so this testimony that's given here in verse 10 is a collective among both the exiled nations of Israel and the grand prophets of the past. Look here at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. These, this would be not just the nation of Israel in exile, but it would also include all of the prophets who have been declaring who God is for centuries and centuries and generations and generations. It also would include future believers. That would mean even me. That would even mean you and me. You see, God will also rise up other prophets among His servant, amongst His people while they're in exile. Not just the prophets of old, but also the prophets that are yet to come when Israel is in exile. He'll raise up prophets there. But God will also call the servant to echo this testimony as God Himself has made them who they are. Here, God is separating Himself apart from the confusion of the pagan idols. His witness will have more than sufficient testimony to justify the one true God apart from the Gentile idols. And so this this verse clearly is this collection of witnesses here. It's it's about the not just the present, not just about the past, but also future believers. These witnesses may include all who believe the calling of God's voice, his servant. These witnesses would include Like we said, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It would include the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets, Israel itself in exile. And these witnesses will include the apostles of Jesus Christ and the Lord's church yet to come at this time in Isaiah's prophecy. And so God declares boldly here in verse 10 exactly why he is causing these events. He says here at the end of verse 10 that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Look here in verse 10. The reason that God is calling them to be witnesses, to to proclaim the testimony of who God is, at the end of verse 10, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. What's that mean? You see, a valid witness is one who does not parrot or mimic a script. Now, a genuine witness is somebody who has firsthand experience, who has firsthand personal understanding of events or perhaps the character of the person being testified about. So this tripartite character, this 
of, of God's witness, to know, to believe, and to understand. This leads to God's nature of grace and salvation. God says here in verse 10 that he is going to allow his witnesses to know him, to believe in him, and to understand that he is who he is, which gives them greater credibility than any pagan witness could ever have about their idol God. A genuine witness is going to understand God's nature, God's grace, and God's salvation. You see, the order of these three words here, to know, to believe, and to understand, shows exactly the act of witnessing or confessing. And, and it's preceded by faith. See, faith here is exactly what's in the center of these three words. You see, faith comes directly from God's provision to know. We cannot know God apart from God telling us, giving us knowledge of him. And that knowledge comes in many different ways. Uh, this faith comes directly from believing, which yields understanding, and this understanding of the one being testified upon. You see, the witnesses will actually know truth when their faith is aided by the acts of worship to the true God. And God gave the nation of Israel the parameters by which to worship him so that they would know him. At the same time, a clear division is made here between true faith and a weak testimony, a weak credulity, if you will, which is often given to persuade the weak-minded. You see, God endows his witnesses with true knowledge and true judgment that they can then distinguish between what is false and what is true. You see, God clearly describes himself here because God does not need any human description. God does not need any human testimony because God describes himself. When he says here at the end of verse 10, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. God is declaring here in verse 10 that he is going to rise up witnesses and cause them to know him, to believe him, and to understand him because there was, there's never been a God before him. There's never been a God that has ever been formed because God himself is not formed. Think about that. When he says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me, this knowledge of God leads to faith in him, which then leads to a progressive understanding that continues to grow inside of the believer, inside of the child of God. It becomes brighter, it becomes stronger, and the testimony becomes more real. You see, this state of mind for the believer, for the child of God called by his name, is not done under one's own judgment. Instead, this progress in a true witness is initiated and sustained by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth. You see here at the end of verse 10, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. See, this indicates a strong conviction that the witness must know who God is. Because he says here in the middle of verse 10, in order to know, to believe, and to understand that I am he. Who is it that we're testifying about? This that I am he is this strong conviction that a witness must have, be convinced of and be firm in. God is, and that is he who is worshipped and no other. You see, one's mind as a witness, one's mindset, one is convicted and, is, and, and may never waver or go astray 
And so God demands and expects a witness that is better than any of the pagan witnesses can ever be against their false gods. You see, in order to know God, we are overcome with the power of the Holy Spirit. God's presence himself is going to cause this to happen. In order to be God's true witnesses, God himself must make us the witness. When God says in verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Verse 11 is very important because verse 11 is using lofty language of victory here. It's a language of victory that a king or a monarch would employ when they have defeated their enemies. Verse 11 here, when God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior, is laying out exactly the point of who He is. God is declaring Himself victor over the false accusations of the idol-worshiping Gentiles and pagans. Because they came against God's people and came against God Himself and laughed at them. You see, where God spells out clearly here in verse 10, how he is known, God now in verse 11 confirms the description of himself with boldness and with authority. God establishes how dangerous it is for one to think about anything or to make up anything about God from their own fancy or their own imagination. You see, doing so is the making of a God or an idol, and that's why he's bringing out here in verse 11, very important, I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. This elevation, its progression of growth within the believer, within the witness. So this is, where, this is what it looks like here when he's repeating the words, I, I am the Lord. It is language of progression. I, I am. It's as if you're growing in who the Lord is. It indicates growth. It indicates progress in being God's servant and progress and growth in the credibility of being His witness. Verses 11, 12, and 13, these three verses really summarize exactly the power that God possesses. See, God's power is God's goodness. When He says here in verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? You see, what God is saying here is very clear that God's power is greater than the pagan idols. When he says here in verse 11, and beside me there is no Savior. When he says in verse 13, there is none who can deliver from my hand. This is in contrast to the pagan secular way of thinking where there is no other authority than what you make for yourself and that, that falls flat on his face. You see, when he says here in verse 11, and 12 of who he is, that beside me there is no Savior. God's power here is declared that there is no other power besides me. When he argues here in verse 12, and he declares that he saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. 
What he's declaring is a reminder to his people of how, how he had saved them from long before. You see, when we witness God's nature, when we experience God's witness and his protection, when he saves his people from the enemies before them, it's what he's saying here in verse 12. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you were my witnesses, declares the Lord. He's, he's going back here in verse 12 to a time when God's people were really his people, when there were no other idols, no other false gods to compete for their attention, when there was no strange God among you, he says, and you are my witnesses. It was back then that God declared that he saved them and he proclaimed who they were. And he reminds them again here in verse 12, and I am God. Wow. You see this act of salvation that we're talking about here, that God is declaring here. He's reminding them that He's not some invisible God that is not active in their real lives. That's what verse 12 is. It's a reminder to His witnesses, to His people. It's also a declaration to the pagan accusers against God and against His people that God is not some invisible God that is just a fantasy of the imagination of Israel. No, you see, the act of salvation is an act in reality, not some high-in-the-sky ideal that we do not encounter and do not really engage. You see, when witnessing God's nature, it's important to testify to what God can do. And he's reminding his witnesses here in verse 12 of exactly what he has done and what he can do and what he will continue to do. You see, salvation is an act in the reality of our everyday existence right now. Salvation is not something that is distant from us and beyond us. And so God's witness, His people, are going to declare God's salvation because they will experience it in reality. And so when God sends His people into exile, there will come a time where He will save them and bring them out. And all of this will lead to and, and foreshadow the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, who will do exactly the same. God will send His Son, Jesus Christ, at some point, and Isaiah's prophecy, as we continue here, will point to that day of the Messiah's coming as the great Savior who will rescue His people and remind them of God's goodness. You see, salvation is not just an idea. It's a real act in material reality. It is a real function of God interacting with His real creation and with His real people and His real servants. This is tangible evidence of a God who is not high up in heaven apart from us. It's evidence of a God who is real, who is right here amongst you and me. You see, it is God alone who saves. It is God alone who redeems. It is God alone that bears witness about Himself. And it is God alone when He saves and He gives the Savior title to Himself. He's not boasting beyond what He can do. He's actually declaring the truth. It's a very bold claim, but it's one that only the one true God can justify and prove as real because He can do it. He has done it and He will do it again. You see, the Savior title is that witness because it belongs to God alone. This title of Savior is not a title that can be given to an idol made by hands. And that's what God is declaring here in verses 11 and 12. 
I, I am the Lord, he says, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and I saved and proclaim when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. God is reminding his people that they will testify to God's goodness and God's power and strength through his salvation. He's done it before. He did it before these idols were ever created. He, he saved us and redeemed us and showed us who he was long before these false gods came into our being. And God's reminding them of who he is. Now let's take a look here at verse 13. God now continues and says, Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? You see, verse 13 here, henceforth, is the idea of God's eternal nature. Now, some translations uh, translate this phrase, even before the day was, or even from eternity. It's not that God has somehow now declared his beginning of who he is in this text, when he says, and henceforth I am he. It's God reminding them that from eternity's past, I always was who I am, I always am who I am now, and I will always continue to be who I am because I am eternal. So it is not that God is declaring a beginning here. It's that he is arguing and reminding them that from eternity. Rather, he declares that he always was and will continue to be the one who is and will deliver his servant from the hand of the false gods. God is saying here in verse 13, Henceforth I am He, from eternity I have been. His supreme and infinite power here is proved from this fact of His eternal nature. Because an idol has a limited existence. There was a time when the idol did not exist. There's a time where the idol does exist. And there will come a time when the idol will stop being. Because it's temporary because it was formed, not only physically out of material, but also out of the imagination of false thinking people. Worldly thinking, secular thinking, pagan-minded people can only manufacture limited pagan-type gods. And it is God Himself who is eternal. Because here's the thing, if God were not eternal... He would have no authority over these false gods. If he were not eternal, he would not be able to expose their limits. He would not be able to expose their lies and their idolatry. Nor would God be the defender of his people and his servants of his witnesses because if God was not eternal, then his witnesses would be declaring a lie. And so God is who he is. So furthermore, God would, would have no power here to dispose of the enemies he would have no power to go against those who oppose his divine authority if he was not eternal. Because that's part of the challenges here from the pagan gods. They, 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 they claim that God's people just manufactured this God. He was a fantasy. Where is he now? Your cities are destroyed. You're going into exile. And so God is standing up here and saying, you think you know <laughs> that you've conquered me? Let me tell you who you're up against here. You see, there is nothing that can stop God's power. There is nothing that can stop His goodness. There is nothing that can stop His salvation, His deliverance. When He says here at the end of verse 13, I work, and who can turn it back? 
You see, this is the testimony of God's witnesses. Who is it that you testify about now? Do you really understand the God that you claim to know? Are you really a genuine servant and witness of God who calls you by His name? These verses here, verses 8 through 13 of Isaiah chapter 43, reminds us, number one, that we are often blind and we're often deaf to the truth of God's Word. And we are dependent upon the eternal power and nature of God Himself, who does not shy away from calling together all of His enemies and stands up and says, My truth will triumph over your lies. And so God here lays out exactly the testimony that we should have for Him. We declare nothing else other than what God grants us. We declare nothing else other than what God says about Himself. That's all we need. We should not be afraid of that. So let me ask you this question. As witnesses of God's people, as witnesses of God's power, if we are witnesses, we are God's people. If we belong to Him, we understand His nature, His power. We understand that He was not formed. We understand that He is who He is. And besides Him, there is no Savior. Are we boasting in empty promises? Are we boasting in our own idol-making? Are we boasting about a God that we really don't know? My prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we would continue to grow and advance in our understanding of God's goodness because God's greatest power is His power to save. That's what He declares right here. God's greatest power is the, is the power to change lives, to turn minds away from false idols back to the true God. It's amazing how that happens. It's a miracle that it does. And without God's love and mercy, without His grace for us, that could not happen. So brothers and sisters right now, those who are hearing my words, who have heard God's word now, what kind of a witness are you? Are you the witness of a false idea? Are you the witness of, of your, an idol of your own making? Whatever that might be, whatever you hold dear and treasure the highest, that's your idol. Or are you a witness of the one true God? What do you spend more time doing? Thinking and pondering and testifying about the one true God or spending more time with secular, ungodly, opposing to Him things? Do you know more about the world than you know about God? Are you more entertained than you are saved? Are you more knowledgeable about worldly entertainment and just dead-end purposes than you are God's Word? My prayer is that God would change within you who you are. May He cause you May He cause us all to be His servants who are witnesses to His glory.
Pray with me. Dear Father God Almighty, we are convicted. We bow before your eternal nature. We bow before your glorious goodness and confess that we often do not stand up as your witnesses. And so God, I pray that you would always love us enough to bring us to awareness of where we are with you, whether we are in your graces or we have abandoned you. Dear God, I pray that you would teach us, that you would keep us embraced and remind us of of who you are by loving us enough to tell us, to change us, to make us into the witnesses that you need us and you want us to be. Dear God, love us, I pray, even though you may exile us for a time. Use this time for your glory. I pray for your mercies upon all who hear these words. I pray, God, for your love for us until we can gather back together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.